With all the projects going on recently, uh, I've been finding myself wanting a truck more and more. I use my sedan, a little four-door Acura 2003 model to get most of the lumber and large items here. It's kind of like a clown car quite often. I've been wanting one for a while, and I'm trying to not just have that dominant in my mind. Lord, it'd be awesome to have a truck. That'd be really cool. I'm an outdoors guy. Our family loved the, loved the outdoors, and so it'd be well used, a four-by-four vehicle to be able to get out into the wilderness and up for skiing and all those kind of good things for the types of projects that I have. But I know that trucks cost a lot. Even if I were to trade in my Acura, it's going to be something added on top of that to get even a beater truck that'll get stuff around. So that's not the kind of purchase I can just show up at home, trade it out the vehicle and say, hey, honey, guess what? I have to make sure that Laura's on board and that we're in agreement on that together. So here has been my plan for quite a while. Every time that I sense the need for a truck, I find a little way just to slip it into conversation. So it looks like this. Laura says, hey, Rich, when are you going to finally build that, uh, that, that shelf in the bathroom for me to put my stuff on? I go, you know, I'd love to get the lumber here. If we had a truck, I could get it here Right, away. I could have that done for you like this weekend, but I'll, I'll have to figure out what to do otherwise. Sometimes she says, oh, it'd be great to go up into the mountains and go hike in this weekend. I go, you know, I would love to do that, but if, you know, if we had a four-wheel drive vehicle, we could just toss all the kids in the bed of a truck and just get right up there. It would be really, really easy. If only, if only. So I'm slowly trying to convince her of the flaws and the deficiencies, the inadequacies of my sedan. For if my current car were faultless, there would be no occasion for trading in for a truck. We're in the book of Hebrews. One of the primary themes throughout the book of Hebrews is that the author intends to show the difference between the old covenant and the new. Often the author does this by showing the deficiencies, or as he will later say, the faults of the old covenant in order to make it clear the need for a new and better one. We're in Hebrews chapter 3 right now. We're about to conclude that chapter today. If you were here with us when we started that chapter uh, several, a handful of weeks ago now, you'll remember that the author began the chapter by showing that the leader of the new covenant, Jesus, is better than the leader of the old covenant, Moses. There were inadequacies, faults, deficiencies in Moses that do not exist in Jesus. It's just one more thing we see that's gloriously better about the new covenant than the old. It's how he starts this chapter. In fact, as it said earlier in the chapter, Moses was a servant provided by God to testify to the new covenant. So even at the point of the establishing of the old covenant, God already had the new covenant in mind. I'm saying covenants. I mean, promises made between God and his people, the way he's going to operate with his people in those periods of history. Prior to Christ, the operation of God with those people, we now call the old covenant. And now in Christ, the promises that are fulfilled in him were established by Jesus at communion. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood. We now call that the new covenant. As the author shows distinctions between those two times, old and new, he pauses to extend an old warning to a new people. And that's where we are today in our text. I'm going to go ahead and read 
through our text this morning. I'm actually going to go ahead and back up just a few verses from where we're actually going to be, and I'll I'll, uh, start in verse 12 and read through verse 19. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19. If you don't have them with you, I'm going to put the slides up uh, that will be uh, the most pertinent verses to take a look at. Let's read. I'll pray, and then we'll uh, go back through a verse or so at a time. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I... I'm desperate to serve and to help this congregation. Lord, I, I aim to glorify you by, through your word, strengthening believers by this word. And Lord, also by proclaiming truth to people to, in so doing, even reach the lost. Lord, we, we aim to do this in all that we, uh, we set our minds and our hearts to. Lord, help us to glorify you today in the way that I preach these words. Keep my words from... from Drifting into error, Father, please, uh, please, right now, uh, utilize what's going to be said in a helpful way to provide strength to the believer today. Uh, Lord, pray for those right now who are, uh, who are sitting here and who are hearing this. Father, please just send your spirit to do a work to, um, to hold the conscience captive, to, uh, to eliminate distractions, to help us to see our great need for verses like this and uh, serve us, Lord with this verse and all these verses the same way as you have for the last 2,000 years. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Here, the author cites Psalm 95. And again, if you were to look up the page just slightly you'll see that he's already cited Psalm 95, starting in verse 7 of this chapter. And he makes the citation, pointing back to a period of history, which he refers to as the rebellion, which the psalm refers to as the rebellion. Here he's reiterating the beginning part of that again. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion or the days of the generation who left Egypt. So here's what I want to do. I want to quickly review the story of what it is he's talking about. We did this several weeks ago. I'm going to go slightly different direction for your your sake today. But the story of who these people are, what is in mind of the author of the psalm, and what is in mind of the author of Hebrews, because both of those are given for our benefit today. Long before the time of the Exodus, God planned to bring his people safely out of the land of Egypt and into the land he had promised to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. Back in Genesis, 
Not only did God establish a promise with Abraham that he will give this land to Abraham and to all of his descendants, he reiterates it with Abraham's son Isaac, and he reiterates it again with Isaac's son Jacob, who will be named Israel. So all the Israelites who come from that man Israel head on down to Egypt during a time of great famine. Some of you might remember the story of Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Israel, who is captured by his brothers because they're jealous of him and his dreams, and they, they sell him in captivity uh, down into Egypt, where he is eventually, through a series of extraordinary God-designed events, becomes the second most powerful person there and prepares Egypt and all the surrounding land to survive a seven-year famine. It's an incredible and amazing story of how God works in history. But even at that time, even when the people were first going down to Egypt and first finding themselves in Egypt, these Israelites knew that God had intended to bring them back to the land of Israel, the promised land. I'm going to show you Genesis 50, verse 24. This is when Joseph is speaking to his brothers. He says this long after his father Israel has died, and, and now he's saying to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's well understood that the people were going to be redeemed out of Egypt and brought to Canaan, the land of Israel, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But the people then could not have imagined exactly what was going to take place over the course of the next 400 years, because that's how long it takes. God waits 400 years with the Israelites living in Egypt. That's longer than we have been a country. It's much longer. It's 100 years longer than we have been a country, United States. And the people living down there in Egypt, and God waited all that time until the people were ready, ready to go. Exodus 3, 7 through 8, records the time when Moses, who's in the wilderness, sees the burning bush, gets this revelation from God, speaks with God, and God commissions Moses, this is 400 years after Joseph, to go back to Egypt to bring his people out. And this is what the Lord says, Exodus 3, 7 through 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Of course, these sufferings are referring to the heavy hand, the forced labor that these Israelites have been under. The, not, just, not just the forced labor, not just the intense scrutiny and slave treatment, but even things as heinous as killing off all of the male children of the Israelites because the Egyptians were afraid of how strong the Israelites were becoming. It's this kind of stuff that caused the people to cry out. They cried out in their sufferings. What, so, so what prompted God's deliverance at this time? What was distinct at this time that made it that this point, 400 years have gone by, multiple generations, and here God sets his mind to bring the people out because they cried out in their suffering. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and 
there's two parts to this. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He'll go on to say this is the land of the Canaanites and the rest of the nations that were dwelling there at that time. The cry of the Israelites prompted God at that point to bring them up out of Egypt and to bring them to something specific, to bring them to the promised land, not just to get them out, but to bring them positively to the land he had promised Abraham. Now, in case there's any uncertainty about this language, about what God intended to do, he reiterates the plan again in chapter 6. Now, what I mean by, by, unless we get it wrong, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. So was it God's intention is to bring them up to the edge of it so they could see it? <sighs> no, it was more than that. Bringing up to that land means to inherit that land. He reiterates in Exodus 6, 8, I will bring you into the land, into it, that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is a major theme of the first five books of the Old Testament, that God has promised to give these people this land, and he will surely do it. That was the promise. Now question, was it certain that this promise would definitely come to pass? Yes. God promises it over and over and over again. The only thing he didn't promise was exactly the timing. But they all knew that this was what God's plan had been. Second question, is this a bit idealistic? Did God just have an unrealistic view about what was going to happen? Oh, it, it, you know, Pharaoh's just going to hear, hey, let my people go, oh, okay, send them out the door, they head on up to the promised land. No, God is very clear with Moses. He knows what's going to happen. So look what he says in Exodus 3, verses 19 through 20. This is in that same time when God is in the burning bush speaking to Moses. He says this, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So is God picturing it right? Of course he is. Just helpful to see this again. God knows exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be rough. It's going to go poorly. He's not just going to let you go. He's telling Moses, go, go tell Pharaoh to, to let let my people go. But he's not going to say, okay, I am going to have to bring mighty signs and mighty wonders in order for this exodus to take place at all. This verse serves as a reminder that God is not surprised by the stubbornness of Pharaoh. He knows all things. Now, much could be said about his sovereignty over the details of all of this event. But at the very least, we must agree on and see that God has a perfect knowledge of what will happen. That is, there's no question about that. He has a very real understanding of what is about to happen. So did God deliver his people? Yes, exactly as he said that he would. The ten plagues of Egypt that eventually caused Pharaoh to have his will broken to the point that he said, go, get out. The people plundered the Egyptians as they left. As they left, they literally went from house to house and said, hey, can we have some money as we leave? And the Egyptians said, just take all of it. Just go, get out of here already. Of course, they, they leave, and as this giant congregation of people head towards the wilderness, head east out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea, and at this pivotal 
critical moment, God uses Moses as a representative to place staff water, wall of water on the right and the left, and they walk through that water to get to the other side, and it crashes back down to destroy the army of Pharaoh. The people are now free in the wilderness. God spent the next two years preparing his people in the wilderness. He gives them food and water. He gives them leadership. He organizes them into a nation. He provides protection from his enemy, from their enemies, safety from those who want to destroy them. Over and over he does this. And most importantly, he establishes with them a law and a covenant. A way by which they can have peace with him. And then, after a two-year period of time, he brings them to the edge of the promised land. The book of Numbers tells us it's probably about two years, two-ish months, maybe almost three months. They get to the edge of the promised land. And this is what happens next. Numbers 13, 2. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So... Twelve spies, one for each tribe of Israel, head on out. They look around all of the land. That's Ephraim and Manasseh, not Levi, if you're keeping track. God had called them the next tribes of Israel. So there was 12 total. They, they literally surveyed the land. They saw two things. First, it was filled with a plentiful bounty. It really was the land flowing of milk and honey, just like God said. It really was a gorgeous, beautiful landscape, one, one that they would desire to dwell in. That's the first thing. And the second thing they saw is that it was inhabited by very strong and capable people. So these spies return, and at least 10 of them deliver a fearful report and the people hear the report, believe the spies accounting, those ten, two of them remain faithful, Caleb and Joshua. They hear the report, the people rebel against Moses, and they demand to go back into slavery in Egypt. Remember, that's the slavery where they were killing off their, own, their male children, where they were oppressing them with hardships, where even just before they let them go, they literally wouldn't even provide them the straw to make the bricks and continue to literally beat those who were in charge of the labor force of Israel, the foremen who were the Israelites, it was a terrible time. And they said, we'd rather be there. Deuteronomy 9, 23 says this. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, that's the place where they were stationed and waiting when they sent out the 12 spies, saying, go up and take possession of the land that I have given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. So why were they not permitted to enter? Unfaithfulness. They did not believe God's promise. They did not believe, and so they did not obey. So God swore that they would not enter the promised land, but he sent them into the wilderness to die. Literally, a generation of them died in the wilderness, 40 years there, until they were all dead. And then... And only then would the next generation be permitted to enter. This brings us back to our text today. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? Led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
Now, this is like a pastor preaching a sermon. The author here is expositing this psalm. He's, he's reading a psalm, and then he's saying, so who? He's asking the pertinent questions. Look back at the Psalm 95 that's listed here in Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7 through 11. You can literally see all the parts and pieces. Who were those who heard and rebelled? What's the Israelites? Whom has, was he provoked for 40 years? What those Israelites? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? All of these are components of that psalm. And the answer to all those three questions is the same answer. That generation of Israelites who were part of the exodus that God made into a nation. Okay. What's the point that the author means to make with this? Isn't that the question? Like you and I knew, if we had any knowledge of Israelite history at all, with one verse, all we need to go is, uh, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We'd know, oh yeah, Israelites, got it, check, okay, okay, fine, we got it. Who's this book written to? Hebrews. So if you and I would have any hesitation in knowing who that is, they certainly would not. They know exactly who this author is talking about. And yet, he pounds this. Who? 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 Why? What's the point he means to make with this? Well, first, remember, as we said earlier today, that this chapter began with the author comparing Moses with Jesus and saying that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So that that's the comparison in mind and why he introduces this particularly wicked generation. During the Exodus, God redeemed the people out of bondage by a mediator, namely Moses. Today, God redeems the people out of bondage by another mediator, namely Jesus. And quite simply, Jesus is better than Moses. That's what he has in mind. In every possible way, the new covenant is an upgrade on the old one. In every possible way, the new covenant is an upgrade on the old one. The author started this chapter by making that point with Moses and Jesus. Now he finishes it with the unbreakable nature of the new covenant. Okay, so both then and now, the people of God were warned to not fall away. But only the perfect shepherd, Jesus, renders those warnings effective to certainly preserve his sheep. Moses could not guarantee the perseverance of his people. He did everything that he could. Neither could Joshua, David, Solomon, any of the prophets, priests, or kings throughout all of history, but Jesus can. How many of the people in Moses' generation did he successfully lead into the promised land? Or God's rest, as it'll be called later in this chapter. How many people in Moses' generation did he successfully lead into God's rest? Technically, the answer is zero, because he didn't even go in. He did not even cross over the Jordan River. You could argue, too, Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies who trusted in God while the other ten did not, because they were permitted to go in. That was a special accommodation. But you might say, too, out of the count in, uh, in these, in these uh, first five books is 600 thousand men that's the count given to us and that's not including women and children so do the math on that 600,000 plus the rest 
Only two get in. How many of the people that Jesus leads will make it into God's rest? All of them. All of them. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's, that's next week's text. The author concludes this chapter with this statement. This is where he concludes. So he's, who, who, them, the Israelites, right? Who, who, who is this that this happened to? And this is how he concludes chapter three. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So what do we see? That these Israelites were unable to enter into the promised land, into God's rest, because of unbelief. It wasn't just wicked works. It wasn't they didn't follow the law perfectly. It wasn't that they didn't know the law or the code. It was unbelief. Now, you might say, as I did when I'm reading through this quickly, well, yeah, you have to believe in God. If you don't believe in God, there's not even heaven for you. But that's not quite the problem the Israelites had. In other words, I don't think that's what the psalmist nor the author of Hebrews has in mind. Because all of them had seen the supernatural hand of God. There were no atheists in all of Israel. They all believed in God in that sense. So it's not that they didn't believe In God generally. What then did the Israelites not believe? Because it's unbelief that keeps them out. What was it specifically? Look back. I'm going to go back to that Deuteronomy 9. I showed this to you earlier. Let's look at it again. And when the Lord sent you up from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And why did they rebel? And did not believe him. Or obey his voice. So why did they rebel against the commandment of the Lord? That's the first thing listed. What was the impulse that kept them from obeying the command of the Lord? Did they not want to go into the promised land? Because they didn't believe him. They didn't believe that God would keep his promises. You know why it's called the promised land? Because it was promised land. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? God is not a promise breaker. But they did not believe the word of God. He said, I will bring you in. And they believed the spies instead. He said, I can defeat those Canaanites. The spies said, we cannot defeat the Canaanites. And they believed those guys. Numbers 14.11. This is another counting, the same exact problem. This is actually in the chapter that this takes place. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? This is what kept them out of the promised land. They believed the spies more than they believed God. They didn't see it with their own eyes, right? They didn't see the giants, the sons of the... Anakim, the Nephilim. They didn't see the fortified cities. They heard testimony. 
They heard testimony from 12 men. Two of them said, we can do it. God is with us. And 10 of them said, no, we can't. And the congregation looked and said, we believe those guys instead. They rejected the promises of God and trusted the lies of men. Now, I want to I take what's already here and I want to press this, press this deeper for a moment. And I want to do that by asking this question. The problem, of course, is they believe the ten spies. Who sent the spies? Whose idea was it to send the spies into the land and to give the Israelites the opportunity to say no? Go back to Numbers 13, 2. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Whose idea was it? God's idea. The same God who knew certainly and perfectly that as a result of them going, the Israelites will rebel against him. This is the same problem that we might have if we ask, why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Why did God just not forego the 40-day reconnaissance mission? Just send them in and have the bad guys fall at, their, their, you know, at the first battle. And they'd be going, oh, we got this. Why not? There's actually some verses that tell us exactly why. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, he actually, this is, this is referring to the exact same period of history. Go back if you want, read 1 Corinthians 10. You'll see he's talking about the wilderness wandering people. Those people who came out of the land of Egypt, it says baptized into Moses, as going through the Red Sea. They made it to the promised land and rebelled against God. Paul is literally telling that story in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says this. Now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. I want you to notice, Paul does not say that these things are being recalled as examples, but that they happened. They took place as examples. That we might not desire evil as they did. This means that they were ordained, intended, by God, for our benefit. If that doesn't drive you to read your Old Testament, I don't know what will. Those things happened so you get good. Those, those events are there to serve you. God prodded these Israelites to send in spies so that they would flee in unbelief and consequently provide a vivid illustration for you and me and every other believer who will ever exist until Jesus returns to warn us of the danger of not trusting God. And what did that distrust produce? Desiring evil. If you stop believing God, you will start desiring evil. 
Here's just a few points that we're going to pull out of this. First, it's unmistakable. God will do exactly what he said he will. You and I look at the story and we go, why? Why do they not believe? These same people who saw the Red Sea part, who saw the ten plagues come on Egypt, who literally, if they were like, where's God? Oh, there he is, the pillar of cloud. The fire at night and the cloud during the day that was with them for those 40 years. And they are wondering, where is God? Oh, what are you stuffing your face with, man? Supernaturally provided manna and quail. Where are you getting your water from? Oh, from the rock. It just comes out when we need it. No people in the history of the world have observed more miracles than the Israelites. We've walked through this before as a congregation. Miracles do not produce faith. They oftentimes produce hardness. We see this too in Jesus' life. Miracles everywhere. People hate them, right? So if you're thinking, man, if only God could do a great miracle and I'd believe him. If only God could do a great miracle and my neighbor, my friend, my brother or sister would believe him. It doesn't work like that. Oftentimes, miracles harden the hearts of people. He can use them to soften a heart. But that's not a certainty for us. God will do exactly as he said he will. There's no people who had less excuse than these Israelites. Do you trust in him? There is no one more trustworthy than him. These Israelites did exactly as we do all the time. They believed those guys. But those guys, they, they, they make sense. They make sense to me. They saw big guys. So let's disobey God. Jesus says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Is that true? Do you trust that? Do you believe that? The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say, there is therefore now no condemnation. Do you believe that? To say nothing can separate us from the love of God. Do you believe that? God will do exactly what he said he will. I brought this up, I think, last week. When you read the book of Revelation and you hear about how God will certainly, definitively destroy Satan and bring it to pass, you go, I hope so. Where do we go? Just like he said. Belief in God is not a one-time event. It is not as though you believe in God to be saved and then go on with your life as though nothing has changed. Continued, persevering, enduring belief is what makes you a Christian. This is why we call Christians believers. Not because they're those people who believe that one thing that one time. Because as believers, we are to believe God and his promises every day. And we are being warned in this passage to not let evil, unbelieving hearts deceive us. Do you live as though you believe God every day? You may not be facing giants in the land of Canaan, but you do have to face your boss tomorrow or the board, or the college board to let you into the new college you're trying to get into, or the conversation with the non-believer in your life, or, you know, a thousand things. Did you know that Jesus commanded us, do not be anxious about tomorrow? 
Paul even says, do not be anxious about anything. Those are commands. Why is it such a big deal that Christians be constantly reminded of these kind of things? The whole New Testament is there to serve us in this way. In fact, one of the other major themes of Hebrews, this whole book, is to encourage us to persevere. Because worries take your eyes off of God and put them on anything else, anything else. Circumstances, stuff, people, ideas. Consider this. Wherever you worry the most is where you trust God the least. You know, I've heard uh, in evangelism, I've heard many people challenge things. They say something like this, that even if a person does not necessarily believe in the gospel, but they're generally a pretty good person, won't God judge his or her heart? Have you heard that kind of statement before? Won't God just judge their heart? Like if a person doesn't believe the gospel, they think they have to do special works to get to heaven. They're not really sure this whole Jesus guy actually died and rose again, but they try to be good. They, they assume there's probably a God there. Won't God just judge his or her heart? Have you heard that one? You see, that's the problem. Your heart is a liability, not an asset. In fact, right here, God calls the unbelieving heart evil. That's what he calls it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And he warns us to not have unbelief in us. Unfortunately, though, many people, many people have similar experiences as the Israelites. Well, not like just like that. But they're in a bind. In a period of time where they feel like they're just in bondage. And, and somehow, something in them cries out to God. And God shows up and he shows up in a marvelous way and they go, oh my goodness, he just... Everything needed to line up, and God just did this great and mighty work, and here I am. I, I've heard the word, and I, I believe that he loves me, and he's been watching out for me, and maybe that circumstance was even there to draw me to him. But later, they begin to lose confidence in that same God they once experienced. This is why these warnings are here. This is why the author of Hebrews is pausing in the midst of this flow to go, don't let that happen to you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous uh, British preacher in the mid-1900s. He says this. I found this really helpful. He said, I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realize two things. I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself. You and I, when we're faced in those moments when we're seeing the giants or when we are hearing the report of dangers ahead, we have to make a choice. The choice to say, I trust you, Lord. Or I don't. Do you really believe that God is working all things for his glory and your great joy? Because the push is going to come to shove in the daily details. Things are going to happen that are going to shake you, and you're going to go, I don't know how to make this decision. I don't, I don't know if I should do this. Is this really going to work out okay in the end? 
And those things coming into our paths are there as the test. Those things are there for us that we would, when we hit them, have to make the choice, I trust in you or I don't. This author is using this period of history, these Israelites, as a vivid illustration for our benefit. This happened to show you the importance of believing. You do see it, don't you? The problem with the Israelites isn't that they go, well, maybe there's not a God who can get us into the promised land. Their problem is, maybe that God that's been doing these things isn't big enough. Maybe that God who's been doing these things is not able to carry out his promise. Maybe he's a liar God who says things and doesn't bring them to pass. You see? What they believed was wrong things about God. At the root of all of your sin, of all of your error, of all of those things is unbelief. It is under there. Do you believe that God is bigger than the strife in your marriage? Do you believe that God is bigger than the secret sin that you hide? Do you believe that God is bigger than the unbelief in the hearts of your children? Why do you think the New Testament encourages us to this all the time? We have multiple encouragements to this effect. Trust in God. Believe in him. Submit yourself to him. Trust in him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Because all these authors inspired by the Holy Spirit know that it's going to be a daily battle to do it. Belief is hard sometimes. You're going to need help believing. Like the man before Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. To ask yourself those questions, because you're going to have to face that this week, today, by the end of the day, perhaps. Do you believe that God is bigger than all those things? Will he do what he said he's going to do? Is he going to work all things for his glory and for your great joy? This is not just a warning, but it is an encouragement. In fact, it is an exhortation. We are to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why as believers, we daily encourage, exhort, urge, persuade one another to believe. Believe God's got this. He knows what he's doing. I know it doesn't seem like it. I know you don't know what's going to happen. This is all going to blow up in front of you and, and everything's going to fall to bits. God knows. And that's our encouragement from this text today. Let's pray. Lord, it is not easy, we confess. It is not easy for us in our flesh, still here, uh, chained in, in, in some sense, uh, in a body of death, as Paul will say in Romans. Lord, we struggle with this. We struggle with really believing when push comes to shove. We, we struggle with really knowing in the moment that you're going to do what you said you're going to do, that you're going to be with us, that you're going to equip us, you're going to provide a way out of every sin, every temptation that is common to man. God, that you are faithful even when we are faithless. That you are greater than he who is in the world and you are in us. So greater is he who in us 
who is in us than he who is in the world. Father, we thank you that these things are true. We ask for your help believing them. Only a God like you can we say, help us believe you. Help us believe you better. You keep us, Lord. Father, Moses could not keep the people believing. Joshua will not be able to keep the people believing. Neither will David, Solomon, all the rest of the leaders in all the Old Testament, the best, the biggest, the strongest, the the wisest, the wealthiest, the most powerful, the most godly throughout all of history were not able to keep their followers believing. But you are powerful enough. Father, we ask that you would keep us believing. Use warnings like this to help us believe. Use fellow believers to help us keep believing. Lord, and when the days get dark and things get difficult, help us to lean even more so into this promise. God, I offer a special prayer this very moment for those who might struggle with something that I struggle with. Lord, I I struggle with, and this is a confession for me and an ask for me and for those who feel this way. Sometimes, The issues that I face, Lord, you know, I think are so small that I ought not bother you with them. You are so big that you ought not be bothered with my little issues. Oh, Lord, please help me see and help those who might struggle with that see that you are so big, in fact, that even all the millions and billions of seemingly seemingly little things are in your charge. Teach us and train us through even those things we perceive as little, to come to you, to pray to you, to cry out to you, and to trust in you through those things. And we ask for that help by the power of your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.